Genesis chapter 33. I'm going to read, um, and if you guys will follow along with me, we'll begin in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 33. It says in verse 1, it says, Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau. The daunting music plays. Da, 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 right? He was coming, and with him there were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. In verse 2, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them, bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And, they, and he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has provided the, ch- the children whom, uh, excuse me, the children whom, whom God has, has, has um, graciously given to your servant. Then the maidservant came near and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down after Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Verse 8, then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, in verse 10, please, if I, knife, if I now find favor in your, sor- in your sight, then receive my present from my hand inasmuch as I have seen your face, though I have seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. But can you turn me down there a little bit, please, Phil? But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are nursing with me. And if men should drive them hard one day, all the flocks will die. Verse 14, please let my Lord go ahead before his servants. I will lead on slow at a slow pace, slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me, and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Sire. And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sire, and Jacob journeyed to Sokuth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. And therefore, the name of that place is called Sokuth. Then in verse 18, it says, Then Jacob safely came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, where he came to Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he, brought the, he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamar, Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And then he erected an altar there and called it El Elhohi, Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for this time this morning. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to stand up here with Clay and Briley and to bless Blake and to dedicate her unto you, Lord. We thank you, God, for everything that you're doing in our community and through our church, and we ask, God, that you would continue to open doors as we desire to be involved in the lives of people around us, Lord, to tell them about you, to show them your love. And Lord, as we study your word this morning, God, I pray you would reveal truth to us, 
through your Holy Spirit, Lord. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you were here with us last week when we finished studying through chapter 32, you probably, like me, when I read through this and was studying and preparing, you're probably questioning some of the things that Jacob did in this chapter when he finally met up with his brother Esau. After all, Jacob had just had this wonderful face-to-face, we're told, encounter with God where he had um, been lovingly brought, um, where God had lovingly brought Jacob really to the end of himself. And even though it was a painful experience, it, it, w- it was a blessed thing. And we know that as a result that God graciously blessed Jacob by changing his name to Israel, and that, that, that name change was reflective of the work that God had been doing and what God ultimately solidified in Jacob's life as he began to wrestle with him there um, um, as he was waiting for, for Esau to come. And, and um, we know that, that through that process that, of wrestling that Jacob was clinging on to God, and we talked about that last week. And in doing so, Jacob, who was now called Israel, was assured of the fact that God was with him, but even more importantly, he was assured of the fact that God was for him. And that's a big deal, because lots of times we, we, we can question that. God, I know you're here, I know you're around, I know you're real, I know you're with me, but are you for me? And in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, we're assured of that, just like Jacob was assured of the fact that God was for him. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, we're told that if God is for us, then who can be against us? But the fact of the matter is, is that this encounter with God that elevated Jacob to Israel, uh, to this high place, is that when he was, that when he was challenged, when, he, when he, he lifted his eyes in this chapter and saw, saw Esau now, now coming towards him with these 400 men, we, we see that, that once again Jacob stumbles a little bit. Consequently, Israel, who believed his brother was still against him, and that he could even prevail against him, he ends up doing some things that best reflected his old nature. Jacob, the deceiver, rather than Israel, whose name was changed to mean a prince with God. But there were also some things that Israel did which clearly revealed that as a result of his time that had that he had that he had that had been spent with God over these last 20 years there's some other things in this chapter that reveal that he had been changed that he had gone through a wonderful process of being sanctified being more like God and less like that old man that he was and to help us see this we need to remember that 20 years prior to these events recorded here in chapter 33 um, from that time when Jacob fled from Canaan, he, when he had deceived his father and tricked his brother out of his birthright, um, what we see is when we, we, we look back on that is that we got to remember that Jacob was fleeing because his brother wanted to kill him for what he had done. And, and at that time of fleeing, Jacob came to this place where he met with God. And, and in that, he, he, he called the place where he had met God he called it Bethel. But more importantly than, 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 than just meeting God and, and the naming of that place, we see that God had made promises to Jacob at that time. Promises to be with him, promises to protect him and to provide for him, and then a promise to bring him back into the land of Canaan in the future. In light of that first encounter with God, Jacob made a vow. And he made a vow in Genesis chapter 28, verses 20 through 22, and he said this, 
And this was in response to the things that God had spoken to him, the things that God had promised to him. And he said, if God will be with me, and if God will keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And, and he said, And the stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give you a tenth. And so Jacob was, was making these future promises based upon promises to God based upon the promises that God has made. And this is important for us to remember because with Israel, with Jacob now crossing back over the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan, the promised land, with Esau, his brother, who had vowed to kill him, approaching with these 400 men, what we see is is that God makes good on that final promise that he had made previously to Jacob that promise to return him safely into the land of Canaan. And when it's all done and said at the end of this chapter is what we see is that Jacob or Israel recognizes all that God had promised to do and he in turn makes good on his vow by building this altar and formally acknowledging the Lord as his God. So as we begin to go through these verses, if you turn back to the beginning, it says here in verse 1 that Jacob, he lifted his eyes, that's significant, and he looked, and there was Esau approaching. He was coming with his 400 men. And so Jacob then begins to take action in light of what he saw. He begins to divide his family up. And he does so in a particular order, in a strategic order, and there's a reason for that that, 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 that is not necessarily good, and we'll bring that up. But then he takes them and he crosses over before them, it says in verse 3, and then he began to bow himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And so you can picture the scene, right? He's got his family behind him. He's walking. Esau's approaching. And he takes a few steps and he bows down. He takes a few steps and he bows down. Seven times this happened. And Esau, he's watching and, he's, and he finally is just like, I can't wait any longer. And he runs to his brother, we're told. And he falls on him. Not with his sword, perhaps like Jacob thought was going to happen. But he falls upon him and upon his neck. And in these first verses, it once again evident to us, guys, that we read through in these first verses where we, we hear the account, we see the promises being fulfilled. It, it, it's evident to us that, that, that the first thing to notice is evident to us that God always does exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever hope for or imagine. And, and we talked about this a little bit last week when we were in chapter 32 and when we went through some of those verses. And, 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 and in that chapter, Jacob recognized the abundant ways in which God had blessed him. And, and he does so here again before his brother once they, they get past the initial greeting point. And, and when we remember that when Jacob had first fled from his family, from his brother who wanted to kill him, all he had with him was a staff. That was it. Clothes on his back and his staff in his hand. And yet now upon his, his, his return, we see that God had provided for him in so much more than God had provided or that Jacob had even said he'd vow to God if he did. He said, with, with clothing on my back and food to eat, right? God, if you do this for me. And God provided for so much more for Jacob than just food and clothing. In fact, we know that Jacob or Israel had become very wealthy. He was blessed with very many children. And in verse 5, Jacob, Israel, does a good thing by proclaiming to his brother Esau that 
Everything that he had was a result of God's grace, the graciousness of God. And in doing so, we see that that Jacob exercises humility. And he didn't pretend that what he had been given was the result of anything that, that he had done or anything that he had deserved. He's all, hey, let me tell you how he tricked my how I tricked my father-in-law Laban out of all these things. This guy, he tried to swindle me and he did this, but I had these smarts and I took this and I put these sticks and, you know, the whole process and what we read about. There's none of that. He says it's God. God was the one who's graciously done this for me. But even though Israel or Jacob gave God the credit, we also see that he continues to struggle. He continues to struggle to live and walk by faith. And in verse 1, there's a clue for us to this as we're first told that Jacob, he lifted his eyes, and in doing so, he saw Esau. And then he divided his children between his wives and his maidservants, putting his maidservants first, his wives second, and his children behind them. And in doing, verse, in doing so in verse 2, it says that he even put Rachel and Joseph, who will come to find out, and we know already that Rachel holds a sp- place of, of, of favoritism in, 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 in um, Jacob's heart, but we see that Joseph did as well. And he clearly put them at the back at the safest place because he was, they, they were his favorite. He was still afraid of being attacked. And this whole lifting his eyes and then positioning his family was a reminder for us. It's a reminder for us that walking by faith is not the same as walking by or walking in accordance to what we can see. By what we see with our own eyes, or by what we understand with our own understanding. It's different than walking by faith. And this is why Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7, said, we live by faith and not by sight. And when we live and walk by faith, guys, it's a trusting in God. It's a relying upon God. It's a clinging to God and doing all that he has spoken to us in spite of what we might see, those Esau's approaching with their 400 men in our own lives. And we do so remembering this, that faith comes and it comes by hearing of the word of God, hearing and doing. And that faith really is the substance of what has been hoped for and the evidence of things that we cannot see with our own eyes. And in regards to what God had spoke to Jacob, we know that Jacob really had no reason to fear his brother in light of what God had spoken to Jacob. But Jacob allowed for what he had seen there to affect his faith, to affect his trust in God. And because doubt and fear then entered in, he took action. He positioned his family in a way that he thought was best. And then in verse 3, he did even a little more by this groveling again, by bowing himself down on the ground seven different times as he made his way to his brother. Now, it's true that bowing down was this customary ancient way or a traditional style of greeting. But with Jacob, there was more than tradition that was taking place in the way that he sought to greet Esau. In fact, it's this bowing down that we see here. It was just an extension of the attempt to appease Esau that began with the 550 animals, the flocks that he had sent before him the day before or the weeks, the days before in order to, to, to give them as a gift to his brother. So even though Jacob's face-to-face encounter with God, which had happened that night, 
Even though Jacob had this face-to-face encounter with God, we see him struggling with his faith. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had those God moments where you're not really seeing God face-to-face, but you know what? God spoke to you. He's revealed to you. He's done these wonderful, miraculous things that you go, man, that was God, and you're telling everybody it was God, but yet the very next day you get hammered with something and you begin to struggle. You're then looking with what you can see and moving in a way that seems right to you. And all of a sudden, where faith was so strong, now you're struggling. And this bowing down before his brother was, it was really only a futile thing because it didn't have any power to change the situation. Furthermore, it was also contrary to what God had previously declared, the things that God had already spoken to Jacob back in Genesis chapter 27, verse 29, because in that, God had said this. He said that the elder brother, meaning Esau, was supposed to serve the younger brother, meaning Jacob. But yet, who's the one bowing down in this situation? Contrary to what God had already said, no faith. And in light of this, we see that when Jacob started walking by what his eyes could see, rather than by walking by faith, he lost sight of who he had become in God. The man that God had grown him and changed him to be. Literally a prince with God, Israel. And by choosing to bow down as he inched his way to his brother, you know what he also lost sight of? He lost sight of the fact that Jacob's real strength was in his limp. You remember after wrestling with God, God dislocated Jacob's hip, and then Jacob said he had a new walk. He limped everywhere he went. And that limp was this constant reminder that that he and God had wrestled. That even though God had conquered him, Jacob prevailed and had the victory because God had changed him, and God and Jacob now through that process was brought to the point where God said, you can trust me. You can trust me to see you through any and every difficulty that you might face. The limp was the reminder of that. For Paul, it was the thorn in the flesh, right? Many people think that that was his eyesight, the problems that he had with that. And and Paul says that God gave me this and wouldn't take it away to keep me humble, to remind me that I needed him and that in him I had everything. And yet Jacob, by bowing down over and over again, he wasn't even limping, probably one step, bow down. Now, often is the case with situations that at least I've found myself in like this, and perhaps you too, things where I I worry about what's going to happen before it even happens, where I've run the scenario of 500 different things and think of the very worst possible situation that could happen, and I'm like, yep, that's what's going to happen. Right? You do that? But as often as is the case in those situations that we find ourselves worrying about, we see that all the worry that led up to this that Jacob had been fretting over and all the positioning, the posturing, the groveling, and the gift giving, and then all the fear and the anxiety that moved him out of God's will, it was all for nothing. All for nothing. As Esau was obviously no, ang- no longer angry with his brother. And in verse 4, it tells us, as I said there, that Esau, he came running to his brother, he embraced him, and he fell on his neck to kiss him. And it was clear that, that something had changed within Esau's own heart, right? A change had taken place in his, in his heart, and as a result, we have this joyful reunion rather than this, this war or this bloodbath that Jacob thought for sure was going to happen. And this reunion took place between these two brothers, and, and Jacob was given the opportunity to introduce his family. Look at my family. Look what God's given to me. 
and to tell him about God's grace and the blessings that God had poured out on his life over those last 20 years. And like I already mentioned, this testimony of what God had done for Israel, it reveals a humility inside of Jacob that had not been present the last two times or the last time these, these uh, brothers were together. And, and, and it's an, and an, another evidence of this change that had taken place in Jacob that God had brought about in Jacob. It re, it's revealed by what took place. And if you look there, it's, we're, we're told in verse 8 that when Esau spoke and he questioned his brother about, about the gifts of livestock, these 550 animals that had been sent ahead, that, 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 um, that Jacob, according to his own words, in the previous chapter and in this chapter also had been sent in order that he might find favor in his brother's sight. We're told that when Esau spoke and realized what his brother had done, it was clear that he didn't want the gifts, right? We're, we're family. You don't, we're brothers. It's all good. You just keep your stuff. I'll keep mine. It's all good. And, and what we see is that Jacob, Esau didn't want the gifts. He just wanted this restored relationship with his brother. And he's saying the gifts aren't necessary. Now, the old Jacob, who had deceived his father and tricked this very brother out of his own birthright, I think the old Jacob would have certainly seized this opportunity to take back what he had given away. Oh, you don't want him? Okay, I'll take him. But Jacob was no longer a taker, guys. Jacob was no longer a taker. He had been changed by God, and having been given more than he could ever hope for or imagine, we see that Jacob was no longer just concerned about himself. And so he insisted here in verses 11 and 12, he insisted that his brother's brother keep the gifts that have been given to him and in doing so he cited the grace of God and basically said this he had freely received these things from God and he desired for his brother to freely have them no longer it was a gift to just have favor he wanted his brother to have them in the light of this we see that the greatest thing that God had given to Jacob was not his wealth rather the greatest thing that Jacob had received as a result of God's grace, and it's the same for us, was this inward change, this new man that he had become as a result of his relationship with God. You see, the bottom line is each one of us has also been given a great measure of God's grace. Have we not? And not only have we been freely forgiven, the Bible tells us that we've all been freely given much. In fact, it says, what do you have that you've not been given Therefore, we need to have this same heart of Jacob that, that has been demonstrated to his brother. A heart that is, that is willing to freely give because we have freely received. For in this, we, we, we reveal to those around us how God has changed us into givers like him. Into people who freely give of our love, freely give of our forgiveness, and 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 and. And he changed us in the process into these people who are now looking to serve and looking to bless others around us instead of always looking to be served or looking to be blessed. And so God did this great work in Israel, in Jacob. 
but there was still a lot of Jacob in Jacob. You ever feel like that? God, I know you've changed me. I know you've made me different, but there's still a lot of me in me, God, and I need more of you. And there was a lot of Jacob still left in Jacob. And as we read on, this becomes real evident. Because in verse 12, we're told, it says, Then Esau said, Let us take our journey, and let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please, therefore, Lord, let, let, let my Lord go on ahead before his servant, and I will lead on slowly at a pace in which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to the Lord in where? Sire. Mount Sire, where Esau was, was living. And, and we see in these verses that Esau is just doing a gracious thing. He's just offering his companionship, probably even safety as they traveled with these 400 men to accompany his brother south to his home at Mount Sire. But it's real obvious as Jacob makes excuse after excuse after excuse that he had no desire to spend more time with Esau, any more time than was necessary. And perhaps he felt that the acceptance and that the forgiveness that Esau was extending, perhaps he thought it would be a short-lived thing, right? He kind of is waiting for the other shoe to drop. It can't be this good. And, and perhaps he was thinking that the bitterness of what had previously happened and the remembrance of that would rise back up and at some point Esau would turn and try to harm him. And so like this farewell that he had previously with his father Laban, Jacob, in, in meeting with, with Esau, we see that this whole thing, in, at least in Jacob's mind, was just an opportunity for a truce. A ceasefire. And not a true reconciliation that led to this active brotherly relationship. In fact, it appears that the only other time that these brothers would ever see each other again would to be to bury their, their father Isaac at a funeral. And this is important to point out because the same thing can be true for us in regard to our own relationships with those around us. Meaning, when, when God would have us be reconciled, when God would have us be restored to one another through repentance and forgiveness. And yet, we only go as far as establishing a truce. A truce with our family member or neighbor, our neighbor or our friend or our co-worker or a fellow person within the church. Because we're unwilling to be vulnerable with them again. We're unwilling to go to that full place of restoration. And we're, willing, we're unwilling to do so because we choose to hold on to the past hurts. Or, we're, or because we're afraid of being hurt again, right? And so we briefly come to one another, offer our forgiveness and, and reconciliation, and we do so only to live apart, the relationship's not like what it was. But the fact of the matter is, guys, this kind of thing grieves the heart of God. And it's not the kind of restoration that God has freely given to us. And it's not the kind of restoration that, that we've been called to have with one another. And as you know, when God freely gave us, He didn't keep His distance with us. 
Rather, our forgiveness brought more than just a peace, peace treaty. It brought a restoration of a personal, intimate relationship with our God. And, and, and God did this with us and for us, knowing what we were like and what we had done and knowing still what we will yet to do. But God says, you're mine, we're restored, we're having this relationship. He doesn't keep us at an arm's length. And this is what God expects from us. Does he not? Does he not say that we ought to forgive one another just like we have been forgiven by him? Now, even though Jacob here in verse 14 gave the impression that his destination was Mount Sire, saying, oh, you go ahead, I'll catch up to you. We see that he offered every single excuse that he could think of to convince Esau to go on before and to let him proceed at his own pace and that he would, he would be along in due time. And, it, and it's clear that, that what, what, what was Jacob doing again? He's deceiving. He's tricking his brother once again as he obviously had no intentions of going to Mount Sire. Nevertheless, Esau, he started back home to Mount Sire, traveling south while we read here that Jacob moves northwest almost in the exact opposite direction as his brother to Sokuth, and then even further north to a place called Shechem. And in verse 17, we see it reads here and it says, and it says, and Jacob journeyed to Sokuth. And what did he do there? He built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Sokuth. Then, verse 18, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he, brought, and, he bought, <laughs> and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And then he erected this altar there, and he called it El Elohi Israel. Oh man, there's a lot here in these last verses. Um, and as we follow this journey that's accounted for us, that, that, Jacob, that Jacob continued on, we need to look back, guys, to Genesis chapter 31, verse 13. Because back in Genesis chapter 31, verse 13, we're reminded that God had commanded Jacob to return to Bethel, the place that God had first met him at. And then on to his home where Isaac lived, which was in Hebron. Is this what we read Jacob doing? No. What we see here is that Jacob detoured. You ever been on a detour? It's no good. It's not any good. And Jacob went on this detour, and first he went south, or excuse me, north to, to, to northwest to Sukkoth, and then... He eventually ended up settling in a place called Shechem. And even though we're not told how long Jacob remained there first in Sokuth, we can determine from what we read here that it was just not a, a, a rest stop on his journey. Why? Because he built himself a house. And he built sheds for his flocks and his herds. And in doing so, we see that he completely disregarded the fact that he... Like God had called him and his fathers before him, Abraham and Isaac, that he disregarded the fact that he'd been called by God to be a pilgrim, right? To be a sojourner, to be a stranger in a strange land. Because they were supposed to live, the Bible tells us, in a tent, journeying from one place to the other. 
Furthermore, we see in verse 19 that, that Jacob drifted even further from the sojourner way of life and the way of thinking that God had called him and his descendants to when he moved near Shechem. And what did he do there? He wasn't renting any longer. He purchased. He made a purchase. He purchased a piece of property and he set up residing in a land that he was literally not a citizen of. Remember, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, it tells us that God, that when God had called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the heirs of God's promise, he called them to live by faith. And in, in that book of Hebrews, there's these comparisons to the journey of faith of these forefathers that is, that is applied to our own lives. So these truths ring true in our lives too as we're called also to live in, by faith. And it says that as God called them to live by faith and to dwell in the land of promise, he did so as one who was to live in a foreign country by dwelling in tents. Why? Because they were called to wait for a city which has its foundations, and whose builder and maker is God. Not of this earth, but of the things above. But it's obvious that, that Jacob, now let's connect the dots here because we've got to see what's taking place contextually. Because in Jacob's attempts to who, what, what is he doing? He's avoiding his brother, Right? And in his attempts to avoid his brother, what we see is he lost sight of this thing that God had called him and his fathers and his descendants to, the heirs of the promises of God. And we see that he was absolutely no hurry to obey God and to return to Bethel like God had, had first called him back to. You see, the point is, guys, the point is, is that God has also called us. Matter of fact, we become co-inheritors, the Bible says, through our faith in Jesus Christ, heirs of all the promises of God. And we're called as heirs of these promises through our faith in Jesus to live by faith as we journey through this life. And this means that we must not cling on to the things of this life, that we must, Bible says, set our minds on the things above, eternal things, on the life that is waiting for us as we remember these things, that we too are pilgrims, that we're sojourners, that this is not our home. That we're just passing through, and as we do so, we're longing not for the things of this earth, but we're longing for a heavenly home. And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we're told of this where it says, it says this, guys. It says, if then you were raised with Christ from death into life, if you were raised with Christ, it says, seek those things which are above. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. Why? Because you died and your life is hidden in Christ, in God. But guys, when we like Jacob, when we begin to move in a way that seems right to us for reasons that are contrary to what God has commanded, and we end up disobeying God, you know what happens? We stop living by faith. And when we stop living by faith, our thoughts are easily swayed from eternal things. You know what? And there's usually painful consequences that follow. 
consequences for these detours that we make. And if you want to read ahead, next week when we get to chapter 34, we see and we read about some of these painful consequences that Jacob ran into as a result of this detour. Now, even though um, Jacob veered off track, we should still commend him for building this altar that we read about in this last verse. If the worship team wants to come up, we're going to end with this. Because what we see as Jacob constructed this altar, we see several things. First of all, we see is that he's using this altar that he constructed, that he built, as an opportunity to make a public witness of his faith in God. And when we consider the name that, that, that Jacob gave this altar, El Elohi Israel, which literally means God, the God of Israel, we see that Jacob claimed, first of all, his new name, Israel. Yes. Remember, God had asked him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, no longer is your name Jacob. Now you are Israel. And, 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 and Jacob, publicly, as he built this altar to God and, and proclaimed God to be his God, he said, God's my God, and I am Israel. I'm a new creation in him. I'm a new man. And at this place, and with this altar, and with this proclamation that Jacob was making, we see that he was making good on his vow. The vow that he had made to God 20 years ago, back in Bethel. Guys, it was a vow to let the Lord be his God. Remember, Jacob had made that promise saying, God, if you do what you have just said you would do, I will do this. And we know, guys, that God had kept his end of the deal. God always keeps his end of the deal. He's faithful, the Bible says, even when we are faithless. And God had kept all that he had promised to Jacob even more than Jacob could have ever hoped for or could have imagined. And as a result, Jacob, with the building of this altar, declared this, that the God of Abraham, that the God of his father Isaac, was also his God. He was his Lord. And I challenge you this morning, I challenge you this morning to go from this place this week to look at your own life, to construct these altars in the public place place, figuratively speaking, where we go into the world beyond the doors of this church and we live our lives with these words on our lips, that God is my Lord because he has done exceedingly and abundantly for me more than I could ever hope for or could imagine. Father, thank you, God, for this time together. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the hope that we find in it. Thank you, God, that even though Jacob still messed up, even after you changed his name and blessed him. God, that you were still for him. And Lord, we are, we're, we're like Jacob, God. So often we see, as we get our eyes off of you and begin to walk by what we see and not according to faith, Lord, we do things in our own way. We put ourselves on these roads that detour us into painful situations. But yet, God, you're willing to accept our sacrifice and our offerings of praise. Lord, you're willing to um, discipline us, Father, and bring us back to that place, God, where we are in a right, where we are right with you. 
I pray, God, for anyone here this morning who is in that place where they've been struggling with the life they've been living and, and the words that they've been speaking. I pray, God, that they would see that once again your mercies are new every morning and that they can, like Jacob, build an altar and start over again. Lord, help us all to have boldness and courage and strength in this world that we live in, in this time that we live in, to live boldly for you. That we would go to our neighbors, our co-workers, to the bridge, to the U-turn for Christ, wherever, God, you call us to go, to boldly proclaim that you are our God. You're our Lord. And may that be reflected in the way that we live and the words that we speak. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, this